0: well good morning hillcrest and can i say this morning merry christmas to everybody yeah, i tell you we got five sundays in december and so we're going to be we're going to max it we're going to stretch it out and we're going to have i mean the way things are going in our culture we're going to start having poinsettias here just after halloween somebody say amen i mean we're going to stretch it out and we're going to enjoy the season the place looks great uh, today And again, five Sundays. And so we're going to have to keep these babies watered or they'll be by the end of the year looking like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. And we can not have that at Hillcrest. Would you take your Bible and be finding the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning? And as you're doing that, welcome to all of you, not only in the house today, but to those of you that are at Spanish Trail today and all of you that are visiting with us online at our website or a Facebook Live, we're just thrilled be able to connect people all over the place this morning. Let's put our hands together and welcome everybody into the presence of the Lord today. Just great to be here. I'm excited. We begin a new series of messages. And by the way, thank you to Brian Davis who uh, brought our culminating message and our series through Acts uh, this time last Sunday. And I know he blessed you with great inspiration from God's word. I'm anxiously awaiting him to ask me to help him lead music one Sunday in December and uh, in return for that. But, no, we always enjoy. we got a great teaching team at Hillcrest, don't we? we got deep bench, and we're so thankful for all of our staff pastors who fill our pulpit. And I never have to worry when I'm gone. I can rest easy knowing that our people are going to get fed. A Steady Diet of God's Word, and we hope to continue that certainly this morning. If you're a parent here today, most of you at one time or another have uh, been given a kind of a cheesy article of clothing by one of your kids. It says one of two things, something like world's greatest mom, world's best dad, world's best grandpa. How many of y'all have ever gotten that from your kids or grandkids? Now I have all over the room. And if you're like me, I know immediately what you think. Oh man, do I really have to wear this cheesy piece of clothing? That's probably the first thing that comes to mind. But wear it you must and wear it you should because your children are communicating something of great value to you by giving you that very humble kind of gift. It's a reflection of the person that they value us to be. Now today we begin a series of messages from some of the major biographies of the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't often do full-length Christmas series for four or five weeks. I usually do a Christmas message the Sunday before Christmas and a Christmas message on Christmas Eve and that's about it. But occasionally we'll do something of fuller length and our people typically love that. God's people love to talk about Christmas and to be reminded of the wonder and the joy and the glory of God penetrating the dark world with the light of his son, the savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this series, we're going to be looking at five or six of the important characters that make up the biographical stories of the birth narratives of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to start, I think you would agree, where we should start, and that is with the mother. Amen. Honestly. We have no idea whether or not Mary was, in fact, the world's greatest mom. We we don't know anything about her parenting skills. We don't know if she yelled a lot. We don't know if she got upset. We don't know how she disciplined her children. We don't know anything about her. In fact, we really don't know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ from the period between his birth and about the time he was 12 years old. And really have scanned information about that period in his life. And so there's this big gap between the infancy of Jesus and the time he burst onto the scene as a 30-something-year-old adult preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. But I think that we can say uh, without doubt that Mary of Nazareth is at the very least a mom for the ages. Uh, We might even be able to say she is the world's, maybe not the world's best mom. We don't know. But we can say, I think, that she is the world's most important mom. Simply because God chooses her out of all the women on the planet to be the mother, to conceive, carry, and bear the one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I think that would make her... be incredibly important. Would you not agree? Mary's important for those reasons, but I want you to know this morning that Mary is important for reasons that lie beyond the identity of the child she bore. She's important in many ways because of her own character. We love Mary because she's what we would call an accessible character. She's not someone who's above us. She's not somebody that's better than us. She's not someone that's necessarily more spiritual than we are. In fact, she's somebody who is very much like us and someone who has very much to teach us. Can we begin by looking at this very familiar passage, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. God's people ready to read, say amen this morning. this might be. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name.'" Can we say it out loud together? Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David Heavenly Father, this morning we would humbly ask that your Holy Spirit invade and pervade this house of worship this morning, have complete reign and be in complete control, bind the devil, and give him no influence that the word of God might be cast, heard, planted, and received today that our lives may be changed because we've been in your presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody together said, amen. Let me give you this morning, uh, using this as our backdrop, four very simple yet important takeaways from this accessible character named Mary's life, things that are important to your life and mine as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four simple things, I think, that we can learn from our life. The first is simply this, and it will be good news to most of us here today, Mary was a nobody. She was a nobody. Aren't you thankful that God can, and most of the time does, use nobodies? Amen. That's how God operates in the world. This is really the first thing that we draw out of this very familiar Christmas narrative in the Bible. Mary was totally, completely insignificant. She's young. She's she's in middle school, for crying out loud. Acne has started to invade her face. She's a giggly kind of young valley girl, more likely than not. She lives in a one-horse town in Galilee, a place that generally was ridiculed by the high and mighty in Jerusalem because it was considered what? Backward and hokey. Mary is not a mature young woman. She's not a well-educated, much refined daughter of the Jewish high priest. She's a peasant girl from Nazareth, a place where the conventional wisdom, as you should know from the Gospels, determined nothing good ever came out of that one horse, one mule town up there in the north country called Galilee. Mark it down. Mary was a nobody. Now, from the perspective of the world, then as now, That wouldn't have been good news. That would have been bad news. In fact, it would have been disqualifying news. Because if you want to change the world, you don't start with a peasant girl from an out-of-the-way place where nobody respected. Don't you go to the daughter of Caesar for crying out loud? Or would you not start with the daughter of the governor? Or at the very least, the daughter of a centurion? Or something along those lines? Man, you start where the family connections are going to be great. And where the likelihood of success and the likelihood of influence can be optimized at the highest level, that's typically the way we think if we're talking about accomplishing something great or shaking up the world or changing the world. One thing's for sure, you don't start in Nazareth and you don't start with an unmarried adolescent girl who has no resume to offer whatsoever. And yet, it seems like the Bible regularly and clearly has something to say about this cavernous difference between the wisdom of the world on one hand and the wisdom of God on the other. Is that not right? We would agree this morning that what the world calls wise, God often calls foolish, and what God calls wise, the world often stamps as foolish. Notice 1 Corinthians 1 and 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no, this is important, so that no human being might what? my boast in the presence of God. I'm telling you, if there's one thing consistently clear throughout the Bible, It's that God works according to grace and not according to merit. Not according to what you and I have to offer him. God's call on a person's life has nothing to do with qualifications, nothing to do with achievement, nothing to do with education, nothing to do with family lineage. It has everything to do with his sovereign purpose and what he wants to accomplish and it has everything to do when it's all said and done with nobody in the flesh getting the glory but the glory going to God alone. The thing about qualifications and achievement, I'm telling you, here's the problem. They get in the way. They get in the way. They get in the way of what God wants to accomplish. And so his tendency is to call what we might say is underdogs. There is this very real thing, this underdog motif that runs from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And the great men and the great women of the Bible were not persons of high qualification or high achievement. They were all underdogs. They were all flawed characters in some way, shape, or form. And that was purposive on God's part. God graces underdogs with supernatural power so that when the victory comes, there's no way they could ever claim the credit. God alone gets all the glory for the great things that are accomplished. And that's what happens with Mary. We don't know much about Mary. But what we do know is that she was somebody who had what? Found favor. Favor. With God. That word favor, in fact, that's the angel's first words to her greetings, oh favored one. And that word favor is the root from the Greek charis, which is our word for grace. The word favor and the word grace basically come from the same word, one of the most important of all biblical words. And it just simply means to be the recipient of unmerited or undeserved kindness or favor. Mary had been graced by God for a very special, unique, once in all of history, purpose, and she hadn't done a thing to deserve it. She hadn't done a thing to achieve it, hadn't done a thing to merit it. What a wonderful privilege, and it was all to her by God's sovereign choice, the grace of God alone. And when this angelic encounter with Mary was over, don't you know she was going to know that? In fact, she'd be quick to confess it right after this passage of Scripture. is this song in your Bible, and it'll be indented as if it were prophetic words, but it's poetic, and it's called the Magnificat. It's the song of Mary that comes in response to this word of revelation from heaven that God was actually going to use her to fulfill the significant promise that he'd made to Israel and to the world. And look at what she says down in verse 46. My soul magnifies... The Lord, and my spirit <clears throat> rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the what? On the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he, not for me, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Do y'all see that? How important is that statement, that realization? That's just a humble a thing that she could have said, and she realizes it, all the emphasis, all the credit, all the glory goes to God alone. And that's why it's a mistake. Are y'all listening? Say amen. It's a mistake to venerate Mary. It's a mistake to deify Mary. It's a mistake to pray to Mary. The Bible never teaches that Mary was without sin. The Bible never teaches that Mary remained a virgin after the Lord Jesus Christ was born, or that she gave grace to others. What it does teach is that she received the grace of God in the sense that God sovereignly chose her out of all the other women who dotted the planet in his divine timetable to be the mother of the Son of God, not because she was more deserving than anybody else, but simply according to his grace in the same way he chose Abraham, In the same way he chose Moses, in the same way he chose Gideon, in the same way he chose David, in the same way he chose Saul of Tarsus for crying out loud. Underdogs, every single one of them, in some way, shape, or form. So never think, I want you to know this, never think that you are so insignificant that God could never use you. I hear that all the time and have heard it for 30 years in ministry nearly. I'm just so inadequate. I'm so unqualified. Well, guess what? You are, but praise God, he wants to use you anyway. This is the kind of attitude that fits right into the palm of a potter who takes lumps of clay, jugs of mud, and shapes and forms and uses them to make his name great throughout the world. So God wants to use you. You're exactly the kind of person that God can and desires to use. So Mary was a nobody, but not only was she a nobody, secondly, you probably already know this, she was a virgin. God's up to something very supernatural here and we see it beginning in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And there you have, brothers and sisters, the birth announcement of the Messiah, who the angel calls in unmistakable terms, the son of God. Now, you can imagine how confused this young girl probably was. Uh, She can't process how this could even remotely happen and with good reason. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And by the way, that's the same question that people have asked for decades and centuries and generations ever since. How can this be? I probably don't have to tell you. I think the most debated miracle in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ I think the second most debated miracle in the Bible is the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. The conception of Christ in Mary without the help of a fleshly uh, man, a fleshly human being through the sexual act. Uh, it's very controversial. More controversial, I think, than even intelligent design, how the world started. I think that's ingrained in most people. They just, they just want to poo-poo it. But the reality is this is the most debated miracle in the Bible outside of the resurrection. And remember, the person that's writing this is Luke. And what was Luke's occupation? Somebody say it out loud. Luke was a a doctor. I mean, of all the biblical writers that should know how babies are made, this is the one right here telling us about it. And we're not talking about a normal baby here, are we? Mary doesn't have the advantage like we have of 2,000 years of biblical teaching. And so, this is really hard for her to process. How will this be? How's this going to happen? And verse 35 gives us the answer. The angel answered her The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God, for nothing, love this, nothing will be what? Impossible with God. Now this is a plan that is without a doubt completely supernatural and Luke presents it as fact. God the Father by means of the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, overshadowed Mary. It's another act of divine grace. Divine grace action, number one, God calls Mary. Divine action of grace, number two, God overshadows Mary in a way that can't be explained according to the laws of physics, the laws of nature, the laws of common biology. In fact, that's what makes it the very definition of a miracle because this is the unique conception in the history of the world, which, by the way, is the way that it had to happen. See, the whole reason that this child is born of Mary in this way is because of our fallen sinful condition and our need for a sinless Savior. It had to happen this way because if it doesn't happen this way, none of us have any hope to ever be forgiven of our sins. If Jesus had simply been the physical offspring of Joseph and Mary, then he would have been another mere mortal just like you and me. He would have been born in sin. He would have had the same inherited sin nature that we have. And one thing's for sure, a depraved human being cannot die instead of and in the place of and for another depraved human being. That won't work. It had to be a sinless Savior, a sinless Son of God, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, which meant that not only did this Son of God have to come from God, he had to be God. Our sacrifice had to be God, and that's what you have in Jesus. You have the unique personality, the God-man, one person, two divine natures, fully human, fully divine, and that's what qualifies Jesus to fulfill this God-appointed mission, to save his people from their sins. And let me say it this morning. Are you all still with me? Say amen. Why you can't deny the virgin birth and be a follower of Jesus Christ. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the faith. It's to deny the historic Christian faith. It's that critical because if there's no virgin birth, there's no unique Savior, no unique Christ, no unique God man. And if there's no unique God man, then there is no sinless Savior. And if there is no sinless Savior, there is no power in the cross. There is no effectiveness of the atonement. And if there's no power in the cross, there's no hope for you. And there's no hope for the world. So this is about as important as it gets in the Bible. So this is heady, heavy stuff, which reflects the third thing that we notice about Mary, Mary was a nobody. Mary was a virgin. Thirdly, Mary was afraid. And I think if Mary were here today, that's exactly what she would tell us. In fact, the text does tell us that. Mary was greatly what? Greatly troubled. That's right. Did you know that's the only time that word's used in the whole New Testament? Extremely rare word that means just total confusion and absolute confusion. perplexity she just has she is totally upside down inside and out in fact her fear was not so much I think with the presence of the angel man I see an angel that's going to shake me to my ankles but I think that the fear is not so much with the presence of the angel I think the fear is with what the angel is communicating to her and if there's a consistent strain that runs through each of these biographical studies from the Christmas narrative That we're going to look at, it's this. All of them, if they were here today, guys like Joseph and the angels or the the shepherds and uh, the wise men and even Herod to some degree, I think if they were all here today, you know what they'd say? You know what we learned from this? Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. In other words, just be ready for anything that God might want to do or accomplish in your life. Because if you're not prepared, sometimes that is what causes more fear than anything else. It's not the hard punch that knocks you out, it's the one you can't see. It's the blindsided haymaker that does the most damage. And I think that's a takeaway from this because when the unexpected happens, man, I'm telling you, unexpected stuff can bring a heap of trouble into your world, a heap of perplexity, a mountain of insecurity. And think about the condition that Mary was in. I mean, here she was, engaged, but not yet married. We'll have more to say about that next week when we look at the life of Joseph. But she's not legally, technically married yet. How would Joseph react to all of this? I mean, how would her parents, her family react to all of this? How would her little town react to all of this? That little dot on the map where everybody knew everybody else and everybody was all up and everybody else had business. How would they take it? What would they be doing, you know, behind closed doors? Well, they'd be talking about when the sun went down. And it's no wonder she was greatly troubled because she was put in a position that we don't like total vulnerability. And God was asking her. To do a costly thing and he will you too i've told you before haven't i following jesus is costly it's costly to follow the lord and you have to be willing to pay the price so that god can use you for a mission that you don't always understand man you're like me you want all the details up front i'll obey you lord but only when i have full understanding Let's do a cost-benefit analysis sheet, amen. That's what we want to do. What's this going to cost me? Let me see if I'm willing to pay the price. That's what we typically do. We want to enter into a time of negotiation with God. And because Mary's in this position of being so vulnerable, the angel encourages her with words that are repeated throughout Scripture, as much as any other refrain in Scripture, I would imagine, over and over and over again. What is it? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. It's all over the Bible. And it's all over the Bible because of these same principles. God often will invade your space as one of his followers. He will lead you and direct you to follow him in a way that's often uncomfortable and in a way that can be very costly. And your response to that will be confusion Perplexity, your spirit will be greatly troubled. I mean, there's a similar word that's used of the Lord Jesus Christ when He's agonizing in the garden the night before He dies. My soul is in anguish and troubled to the point of death, Jesus said. And you know why? Talk about costly missions. He had the costliest mission of all. And so Mary was very vulnerable because this was a costly mission. And yet, the angel assures her, don't be afraid. You're vulnerable, absolutely, but God's at work. And you need to trust him. And that's the bottom line. Every one of us will be put in positions, often in our walk with the Lord, where it will be determined by your response whether or not your words about trust match up with your heart about trust. Do you really Trust God the way that you confess that you do. You know, that concept of trusting in the face of fear was the focus of, a, of an advertising campaign that came out by a major insurance company uh, several years ago. Um, it's been a few years, but some of you may remember this commercial. I'm gonna play a commercial for you here. And as we play the commercial, be sure that you follow the string of words on the screen. Perhaps you'll remember this as we roll it this morning. Man, I'm telling you, if I ever need insurance, I'm calling the St. Paul, amen. (laughs) Like their name too, by the way. Isn't that great? Did you notice? Trust is not being afraid even when you're what? When you're vulnerable, very good. That's a great, great ad. I just want that little girl in my house on Christmas morning opening presents. (laughs) She's such a cutie. Man, she stared that rhino down, didn't she? Didn't flinch, didn't move. She stood firm in faith and she confronted her fear. And You need to know this, vulnerable you will be from time to time if you follow closely the Lord Jesus Christ in this crazy world. In those vulnerable moments, let me ask you a question. Where lies your trust? Where lies your trust? Do you really trust God? I don't know what you find security in today, 401k, 403b, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, cash accounts, relationships, job, uh, institutions, Uncle Sam, federal government, armed forces of the United States. Where do you find your security? I'm just saying, all those things are great, but when life and reputation are on the line, you better learn to cast your fear on the Lord and find your security. In nothing but the Word of God alone. That's what Mary does here, and that's what makes her great. She trusts in God's Word alone. And when you do that, you know what happens? You all with me so far? Amen. Mary was a nobody, Mary was a virgin, Mary was afraid. <clears throat> but when she got that word of encouragement, thank God, forth, Mary was willing. She was willing to be used by God to accomplish something great in the world. In fact, her response to this revelation is really remarkable. Just a few verses earlier, uh, Zechariah, who is one of the priests of Israel there in Jerusalem, he wavers in unbelief when the angelic uh, 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 visitor from heaven shows up to give him a similar kind of deal. Your wife Elizabeth is barren, but She's going to conceive, and it's not going to be a divine conception. Y'all are going to do it the old-fashioned way, but she's barren, and that's going to make it just as much a miracle. And uh, she's going to have. And Zechariah couldn't believe it. In fact, he wavered in unbelief. The Bible says, and demanded a sign when he told was told he's going to be a father in his old age. But, but the thing about Mary, radically different. Zechariah has his hesitancy. He backs up. He reasons with God. He wants some kind of assurance. And God kind of immediately judges him for that. But we don't see any of that in Mary. I mean, it's a little adolescent girl for crying out. Don't see any of that. I mean, maybe she she just has a lot to learn, but she just trusts God instinctively. No objection. Doesn't ask God for a fuller explanation. She just believes. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Man, you're talking about instant obedience. You don't even see that out of the Savior of the Old Testament whose name was Moses. I mean, remember Moses had more excuses than Walgreens has pills for crying out loud just bantering with God as to why this was totally a mistake. And you don't even see that out of this young girl. The word translated servant. It's funny that she identifies herself as a servant, which would principally be the way that the child that she would bear would identify himself. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Isaiah, four times in his book of prophecy recorded in your Bible has these expanded songs of the servant that are all messianic in nature, four of them. And all of them point to the coming Messiah in language that implies that the one that is to come will be the servant of the Lord. And this is how Mary describes herself. It's a word that literally means slave, doulos. It's the slave concept which simply means she is totally attached to the will of God and completely committed to do it. This is just total obedience, and I'm telling you, this is why we don't deify her, we don't venerate her, and we don't pray to her, but we ought to honor her. And it's why we do. Not because she was divine or qualified by rank or status to bear the Son of God. She was not. But we honor her simply because she was willing to submit herself to God's plan for her life, even though it might mean embarrassment, ridicule in the community, rejection by her groom-to-be, possibly even death. Thirty years after this, a woman would be caught in adultery during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what was the crowd intending to do to her? Maybe. That would have been the case here. We don't know. I'm sure she thought about it, and yet Mary simply did. She was a disciple before being a disciple was cool because there's something in the Bible where Jesus would say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and that's what she does. She trusted God, she denied herself, She took up her cross, and she followed the will of God, which is the very definition of what it means to be a disciple. Brothers and sisters, if Mary's life convinces us of anything, let it be this. God can use the least of people to accomplish the greatest of things. But here's what you have to do. You have to face your fears, trust God, and then walk confidently in faith to accomplish the will of God. That's what a disciple does because a disciple believes the same thing Mary had to believe. For nothing will be what? Impossible with God. It was true for her. And in the will of God, it's still true for you and for me. This is God's word. Let all who agree say, amen.